Well, forever to all the boys, there are literally three kissing booths. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I hate that that's true. You're listening to Love Ya, your guided tour through the wide and wonderful world of streaming teen cinema and rom-coms. I am your co-host, library manager, teen wrangler, and YA-lit enjoyer, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host. I'm Martin Higman, adult services librarian and rom-com enthusiast. And we are here today to discuss the 2018 Summer 03. Written and directed by Becca Gleason, starring Joey King as Jamie Winkle, Paul Shear as her father, Ned, Andrea Savage as her mother, Shira, Jack Kilmer as Luke, June Squibb as Jamie's grandmother, Dottie, Kelly Lamore Wilson as Emily, Aaron Dark as Hope, Logan Medina as Dylan, Stephen Ruffin as March. Uh, Bill Udaly as Father Patrick, and then a host of other people as various teens and adults uh, that appear in this tumultuous week of Jamie's life. <laughs> Marin, would you like to give us a brief synopsis of Summer of 03? Yeah. So as you alluded to, uh, this movie follows the life of teen uh, Jamie Winkle over one very dramatic week um, in the summer of 2003, wouldn't you know? Um, the week starts with her grandmother dying, and before her grandmother dies, uh, her grandmother does several things that put the spin the events of the week into motion. Uh, first of all, uh, her grandmother tells Jamie that uh, she both was baptized as a baby without her parents' knowledge. Uh, and needs to learn how to give a good blowjob. Uh, she tells Jamie's aunt that she locked her in the closet as a child. And she tells her cousin that, she being her the grandmother, she tells, uh, the grandmother tells her cousin that she thinks he's gay. Uh, and probably the biggest bombshell, uh, the grandmother tells Jamie's father that his, the father he grew up with was not his biological father. Uh, so Jamie's father decides to fly to Germany to find his biological father. Uh, while he is gone, um, Jamie, uh, alternates between, uh, partying with her friends, um, Marsh and Emily, um, and then decides to follow her grandmother's advice and go to church, not in small part because she is attracted to a soon-to-be priest named Luke. Um, things come to a head. (laughs) <laughs> literally where uh, <laughs> uh jamie uh and luke uh consummate their affair um it is, and are discovered um jamie uh realizes that luke didn't really care about her he just wanted to have a little bit of fun before he officially became a priest uh jamie uh makes a big speech uh at her grandmother's funeral where she lets everybody know uh, this is ha- you everything. Know, all- everything that has happened. Oh, and somewhere in there too, multiple times, her cousin steals a car and tries to drive off, um, because poor boy, his grandmother has made him feel like he needs to go find a conversion therapy program. Which whoa, let's put a pin on that. We'll go back there. Um, yeah. So this all comes to a head at a chaotic funeral. 
Uh, and the movie ends with Jamie back in school, uh, presumably realizing her friend Marsh is actually a much better match for her. And did I leave anything out? Um, just some details that I think we're going to get into in in further detail. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this movie was a lot. It was a lot. Um... Overall impression before we get into kind of the nitty gritty. Uh, I only want what's best for Jamie's mom, Shira. Shira deserves the world, uh, as does her cousin Dylan and probably her aunt Hope. She seems like a sweet lady. Uh, everyone else in this movie needs some serious therapy. Uh, and wow, it's exhausting. Yes. It was it was not until we got to the funeral that I was like, "Oh right, it's only been a week." Yep. Um this movie felt like about eight different movies. Yes. But I don't but I I think that that was okay. So I think that this is a question of, was the movie successful in what it was trying to do? And did I like what it was trying to do? Because I think what the movie is going for is that sense of sort of all out chaos that somebody would get from suddenly feeling completely unmoored from their reality, because that's really what is happening to Jamie and her family. Like, her grandmother dies and on her way out makes sure that she is leaving behind as much chaos as humanly possible. So I think that we are supposed to feel just like utter that everything is in utter chaos. I don't think we're supposed to be able to take a breath until the movie is over. Um, I think a separate question is, how successful is the movie in getting to sort of the human emotion part of that? Because I think the movie does the chaos very well, but I did not feel like it balanced that with sort of the, the human element. I did not feel connected to Jamie and I, in the way that I, in a way that I think would have made the movie more successful to me. Yeah. And I think that, so at certain points of this movie, I stepped back and I, like, took my judgment hat off. And I was like, okay, these are clearly people, like, not just Jamie. This is clearly a family going through one of the most challenging weeks of their life. Like, we are seeing people hit rock bottom here. So, I think, though, the trouble with telling such a compressed rock bottom story is that like you said, it's hard to kind of relate to the emotions. Like, when the story is all chaos, it, it's hard to have an in there without just feeling uncomfortable. And Plus, Oh, sorry. And I, I, I think what the movie is trying to do is it is trying to say something about like transition periods in our lives and like the transition for this particular family at this particular moment is all of the bombs that this grandmother has dropped on her deathbed. But I think it's trying to push us and it's trying to tell us that like 
ah, yes, teenagerhood is full of transitions. And this was like my personal story of teen transitions. But I think, unfortunately, that like because we can't emotionally connect to Jamie because we don't ever see Jamie kind of in stasis, like it it just is exhausting. And I just left the end being like, whoa, like I don't. I understand that we have just gotten this one glimpse, but I don't, there's nothing in this movie to latch on to. Well, and part of the problem there is that as soon as our characters start to be able to process what has happened, the movie ends. Right. So we as an audience don't really get to enjoy, we just see the chaos and the tumultuousness we don't ever actually get to see them process all of this as a family. Like we get Jamie's final speech at the funeral, but I, that is not really cathartic in like a satisfying way. That's just sort of her reiterating for us, the audience, everything that has happened. Oh, I felt so uncomfortable. I literally, I will call that a pug clutching part in the movie. Cause I literally had to put like clutch my pug to be like, make this stop. This is I so just, uncomfortable. And like, I understood the point that she is making, like that families can't like that. You can't have healthy communication and be keeping these kinds of secrets from each other. Or if you are keeping these kinds of secrets from each other, like something in the family is not healthy. But also I was like, Jamie, there is a time and place for this. <laughs> yes. And then um, she steals a golf cart. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> and and that was that was also part of it for me. I think is that the movie never lets us sit in that kind of realization with her. It's just like, and now more wacky shenanigans. And I'm like, but we also need to process everything that you are trying to tell us. Yeah, and I think it. I think it thinks it has a moment like that where at the end they're all sitting around as Jamie has crashed a golf cart into an open grave and breaks her arm. And there's a moment where the family is all sitting um, as her cast is being put on. And because her cousin had had a cast from the same doctor, like earlier in the week, the doctor's basically like, I hope I don't keep seeing you guys. <laughs> and the whole family starts laughing together. And I think that is meant to be our like one moment of catharsis. But we needed probably like 10 minutes of that. Um, well, and we needed to see the family actually talk to each other about what had happened. Right. And because I I'm. I'm just kind of like, well, you you guys are still not going to talk to each other about any of this. And it's like we can't. I mean, it's almost like watching objects fly past you in the sense that, like, because we have just seen these characters f fly through these chaotic events, we've never actually been able to actually see them because they're moving so fast in front of our eyes. This is probably a clunky metaphor, but you understand No, no, saying? I totally... Yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, that like, yeah, we have never actually gotten to see them because this movie has been so focused on, as you said, wacky hijinks that it didn't sit down to have any moments of gravitas. And I think it thinks it has some in there, 
But those just end up making me roll my eyes and be like, oh my god, you pretentious teenage girl. Good lord. Like, your mother deserves a medal <laughs> for how patient she is with you. And, um... Yeah, like, it just, it didn't have those moments of pathos. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Like, it needed more pathos. Can I tell you what I do think the movie did well? And what I was very, very afraid of? Yeah. Her relationship with Luke. Mm. I had so many concerns about what was happening here. But I think the movie does, too. I don't think there is any part of the movie that wants me as the viewer to think that Luke has been wronged in some way or that what they were doing is correct. Like I, I think that the movie was dealing with something that was potentially, well, is dealing with something very sensitive. And like, that was the one part of the movie where I was like, this feels like it is being handled with the correct amount of like gravity because we it the movie is from Jamie's point of view so we do get to see Luke through her like through her perspective but also we let me see how I'm trying how I want to how I want to say this like I don't I don't think that we are supposed to view their relationship as like romantic or star-crossed i think from the jump we as viewers are supposed to be very skeptical and then very like oh this is not good yeah this yeah is- i think immediately like the movie very much like lets us in on like this is a not going to end well and b this is not like a grand romance this is like oh girl like oh don't do it you know like and then Cringy. And then I also I also very much appreciated that she was not punished for having sex. Like when they are discovered the issue the the her parents are never like we're mad at you for doing this. Like her mom straight off is like oh like he should not have done that. Right. Right. Well, um, I think too I appreciated that like her parents the whole time were like, we didn't know where you were. We wanted to make sure you were safe. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not, yeah, it's not about her being sexually active. It's about, like, we are worried for your physical safety because you aren't communicating with us where you are. Right. (coughs) So, yeah, I appreciate it. And I liked that the character of Emily really, I think they, they did a nice job of, like, you know, showing that, like, Jamie's friend group, for the most part, you know, is pretty sex positive because Emily has, like, this different experience and is being like, yeah, sex is great. Like, let's talk about it, you know. And the scene, the scene where Jamie does slut shame her, the movie is not on Jamie's side. Yeah, exactly. Like, that is very much framed as, that is a bad thing you just said. Yeah, yeah. That, like, Jamie says the slut-shaming comment, but it's not. Yeah, we as the viewer know that she's in the wrong. Yes. Um, I have a question. Yeah. 
Do you have any, and you don't need to get specific with this, but do you have anyone in your family who is as pure of a drama monger as Dottie uh, Winkle? Yes. I do too. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was saying, I was like, oh God, I do have some family members who just like to sow chaos. Oh yeah. Well, and there were parts of this movie that were very hard for me to watch, not because, um, like, not because I, I feel like I know a Dottie. I mean, I do, we all do. Um, but because I have now been through a couple of situations where somebody either in my family or someone close to me has passed away and left family members with very deep unresolved issues. And the, the kind of compounded grief that you can feel when it's like, well, now I ne now I'm never going to be able to sort this out because the person that I would have needed to hash it out with is gone. And I would not have minded, I think, spending a little bit more time in that. Like, I, I felt like once Dottie unleashed chaos, everyone in the family was kind of left to fend for themselves in their own fallout. Yeah. And there was not a whole lot of time spent with the fact that the person, like, the reason that everybody is feeling all of these deep, like unresolved things is because the person that they have the unresolved issues with is now gone. Yeah. And that is a, re that's a, such a hard thing to deal with. And it is heartbreaking to watch people that you're close to have to go through that. And I was a little bummed that we didn't get to spend more time just with that feeling or that kind of emotional storyline. Yeah, because we get it for the one beat during her speech. She says, like, you know, I'm f and I appreciated that what she said was, like, yes, they're, they're, you know, we're all going to have really great memories of Dottie and everyone who has come up here before me has, you know, kind of extolled her virtues. Here she has left us with this, like, cascading series of time bombs. And both things are true. And we're going to have to figure that out without her being here. And that's really hard. Um, so it, it like gave a nod to it. But like I really would have liked to have seen her have a longer conversation with her dad, with her aunt, um, with her cousin. Because, yeah, I think they, they need it. We needed to see them talk about that as a family. Not just her putting that out into the world. I also didn't love... Like, her her dad finds out that the man that he grew up thinking was his father is not his father. And I think that is easily the biggest bombshell <laughs> that oh, she leaves far. them with. And... I have mixed feelings about how the movie dealt with that. <laughs> yeah, and I, and that was the one where I know I mentioned earlier, like having to take a step back and being like, this is the hardest week in probably at least the adult characters' lives for sure. Yeah. You know, this is like one of the hardest weeks of their life and like to have a little compassion. Because I did throughout the whole first half of the movie, I was just like so pissed at him. 
because he pieces out. Um, yeah, he leaves. He goes to Germany and brings back this strange man who is deeply anti-Semitic, and Shira, uh, Jamie's mother, is Jewish. Yeah. Um, which is why she had to be baptized secretly. <laughs> but oh, that wow. whole thing, so that whole story then gets treated very much like a gag, and I was kind of like... I actually would have enjoyed an emotional resolution in some manner for this. Right. Because it it lets Shira have a moment where she is kind of like, this is not acceptable. Like, you can't just bring this on somebody like this. And, like, I'm not going to be called slurs in my home and walks out. And I think that's the closest that this movie gets to, like, calling her dad on what he's done. And... Yeah, I I think there needed to be a, like... Because, you know, again, at the end of the movie, I stepped back and I was like, God, like, yeah, this guy was really... Made some really awful decisions, but also he is hitting rock bottom. And we get every indication that this is very out of character. Um, But we don't know enough about that character, like, his normal character. And we don't get, you know, we don't get to see enough time of him, you know, before this information and then after you know coming home and and expressing some remorse for his really erratic decisions um and and i don't think i don't think that this movie had to make like a turn into the dramatic like i want to be clear i think it could have accomplished everything that we're talking about and still maintained a comedic like and still remained a comedy i think the best comedies know how to balance their dramatic beats with the wacky shenanigans, I just don't think that this movie was very good at it. No. No. And I think this movie, like, tried to filter some very tough topics through comedy and wacky hijinks. And, yeah, it didn't take enough time to ground those heavy topics. Because, um, yeah, you need to have that payoff when you're a comedy tackling something really tough. You need to have both that levity, but then also, yeah, there needs to be that balance. Um, Can we talk just a little bit about the 2003 of it all? Okay, so, all right, I had some <laughs> thoughts about that. First of all, first of all, I would like yes. to speak to the music director of this movie because, yes. oh my goodness, there was nothing here that sounded like 2003 to me. What were we listening to in 2003? Okay, that's a good question. Okay, Slash, this is where I do confess that I spent most of the year of 2003 in England. So my pop culture might be a little different. But I don't think it's that far off. So who, yeah, who was big in 2003? Okay. Who Let's should see. we, who should we, you you look up that and I'll look up this movie's soundtrack. <gasps> Dangerously in love! They could have put Dangerously in Love in here. See, I don't know who that is. Beyonce. Sorry, that's the album that has Crazy in Love. Why did this movie not feature Crazy in Love? It was right there. Uh, Bring Me to Life? Evanescence could have been in there. (laughs) Incredible. Come on. Uh, Unwell by Matchbox 20? Why was that song not in this movie? Why was there no Matchbox 20 in this movie? There should have been Matchbox 20 in this movie. That is absolutely correct. Also, 
I noticed a lot of fashion trends and I was like, mm, I feel like people weren't wearing that until like 2005. Get low! Get low! Could have been in this movie. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if they just didn't have the money for it. Probably not. Yeah, there because was... I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this track list, and I don't know any of these people. Right. Yeah, they probably had to stick with like indie. All right. Well, I feel like I just came yeah. up with a better soundtrack for this movie than this movie had. So you're welcome. I felt I felt very strongly like the biggest connection this movie has to 03, to 2003 in my memory were the cell phones. And right. the Harry Potter references. Right. And the Harry Potter references felt, even those felt a little bit like, hey, remember we're in 2003? Right, right. Like, <laughs> this is how we're dating this. Don't you um, remember in 2003 when you went to a bookstore at midnight? Yeah. Which I truly did. Um, but it also meant that I wasn't really sure why we felt the need to set it so explicitly in right. that year. Avril Lavigne, Martha, they forgot Avril. I think they didn't have the money for it. Yeah, probably. Sorry, but I yeah, just... like, why do you, what was so important about the year 2003 that you not only set your movie very, very specifically in that year, but title it after I, that year? I feel like some parts of this movie are, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but part of me feels like, in some ways, this is like a teenage writing project that's like a little too close to home, you know what I mean? And so that the writer keeps very specific elements because it's like, well, this is what happened in my life, you know? So I, I do think you're not far off. I was reading the Marie Claire, or not the Marie Claire, the Mary Sue review of this movie. Mm. And parts of it, so the director has said that parts of it are autobiographical. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure which parts. My suspicion is that it's the relationship with the priest. I think so too. Um, I, I should say that is not researched at all. That is just kind of my gut feeling because honestly, I think those parts had the most kind of emotional like though that storyline had the most sensitivity and the most emotional depth yeah. for me yeah okay. um in in which case i think that yeah the the year's relevance is probably an, an author referenced um exactly but also if you're gonna set your movie in a very explicit year like set it in that year right let's Let's see, like, what what, what what were we wearing? I keep wanting to say, like, flares and tank tops over jeans, or over t-shirts, but that was more like 2000. Well, actually, I was going to say 2001, but that's not too far away. True. I was wearing a lot of button-up shirts open over camisole tops. Yes. Because I wanted to be girly, but not, like, too girly. Aww. <laughs> And button fly jeans from the gap. Aww. Yeah, I do remember, like, people were. There were a lot of trucker hats. <laughs> yes. Well, because Ashton Kutcher was very big that year, wasn't oh, he? Oh, yeah. For, like, oh, that yeah. period of time. I did appreciate her Orlando Bloom poster. Yes, that was period accurate. In fact, I kind of remember that, po that particular read poster. I'm pretty sure we had a had 
if not that exact poster, something like that. Yeah, I also remember, like, the really low-rise jeans with, like, the... Didn't have a snap, but it had, like, a, almost like a cord that tied. Do you remember those? I don't. Okay. But again, remember, button fly jeans from the men's section of the Gap. That was what I was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was wearing t-shirts and... I don't know. Mostly clothes from Goodwill, because that's how I rolled as a teen. But I will say that because so much of this movie, like, we do have some party scenes, but they are filmed very kind of like party montage scene. I didn't have a very good sense of the fashion of the movie. Like, the only outfit I can kind of recall off the top of my head is the dress she wears the one time she goes to church. Oh, my God. Which was a very cute dress, but also for church. <laughs> but also, she I mean, she's wearing it to, she's not really wearing it to church. She's wearing it to get Luke's attention. Okay. How did we feel about Jamie King in this movie? Because we've seen her now pop up a couple of times. Yeah, I thought this was a much better performance than The Kissing Booth. And I can't remember what else was in her end. Yeah? Uh, I didn't like the kissing booth either. I guess... I mean, I did like the kissing booth, but I thought this was a better better, Yeah, I think this is a better movie. I guess I struggle because I think I want to like Jamie King more than I actually like Jamie King. Right. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. I just, I don't know that she is a great actress. No. I think she's cute, and I think she has a great rack. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think um, she did, she was like a child actor, right? Like. Joey King. Sorry. Oh, well, Joey King. I think her character's right. name. Would... Her character's name is Jamie. Yeah. Her name is Joey. Yeah. She. She was. Um. What did she start off in? She was in a Zach Braff movie as like a preteen. Oh wow. Yeah, she did some, like, TV stuff as a child. Um, she plays she plays Ramona in the Selena Gomez Romana, Ramona and Beezus movie. Oh. That was her. That was from 2010. Okay. And that was her first kind of big role um yeah so she's been acting for a long time and i mean i guess she could be worse i don't know i always watch her and i'm like joey i like you i'm just not i don't know i don't connect with her and i i don't know if it's her fault or if it's my fault Mm. yeah 
interestingly enough, Summer of 03 and The Kissing Booth came out the same year. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, like, girls working. She sure is. But yeah, no, I don't. I think she is a poor imitation of Catherine Longford. Oh, interesting. I think Catherine Langford, yeah, I think Catherine Langford is much more magnetic. Yep. Uh, anything else mm-hmm. we want to say about Summer of 03? Not really. Again, I will just reiterate, I only wish the best for Shira and Dylan. <laughs> oh, and poor Dylan. The- poor Dylan. So... Yet, not only does his grandmother on her dying day tell him that she's pretty sure he's a homosexual, but that she should have sent him away when he was younger in order to fix that. And I was like, can we circle back to that? (laughs) Because that is a horrifying thing to say to a child that I'm pretty sure is like 10 years old. Maybe. Maybe. Oh, so bad. So bad. Uh. So what would we recommend along with or instead of this movie? Uh, So I actually have a book that I'm going to recommend. My recommendation is the graphic novel This One Summer by Mariko and Jillian Tamaki. Uh, This is about two, like, 12, 13-year-old girls who have been, like, summer vacation friends. Like, their parents rent cabins on the same, like, vacation strip. So every summer, like, they're about the same age. So they hang out during the summer. Um, And this particular summer, one of the older teens in the neighborhood, they hear tried to commit suicide Mm -hmm. so the the book is about like these kids are a little bit younger than jamie is in summer of 03 but it's it's about two teenage girls processing a grief event while also dealing with like their own growing up growing apart figuring out who they are hearing all the older kids talk about like dirty older kids stuff um all under the umbrella of this kind of summertime freedom and glow that they uh you know that they they normally associate with like the freedom of being children but now they are starting to grow out of being children and what does that kind of all mean it's a very affecting graphic novel i I really, really loved it. I find it very moving. Hmm. And it deals with a lot of these same themes while not being quite as, like, romantic, I guess. Mm -hmm. Or um, it's not as shenanigans heavy. (laughs) Well, that's funny because I went the exact opposite tack. uh, Perfect. Perfect. Let's give our listeners options. (laughs) Exactly. And I'm going to recommend a priest romance. Because <laughs> that's where we're going with this. Oh, I'm going to recommend uh, Hot Under His Collar by Andy J. Christopher, uh, which is about Father Patrick Dooley and Sasha Fingerty, who start working together on a project um, for uh, uh, Patrick 
is trying to build a community like kindergarten program at his church and Sasha comes on board to help him with fundraising um Patrick was already like having doubts about his calling and uh meeting Sasha just reinforces those doubts and well you can kind of it goes exactly as you would expect. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a very fun read. Um, yeah, so yeah, Hot Under His Collar by Andy J. Christopher. So, Marin, tell our listeners what we are watching for our next week, for our next episode. Yes, I'm very excited. So for next week, we are going to watch uh, the first season of Starstruck, which is on HBO Max. Um, it is six short episodes. Um, so there are many episodes, but they are short, only like 23, 25 minutes. Um, and it is about a young woman, um, living in London, uh, who, uh, is kind of trying to like get her life together and she goes out for New Year's Eve and has a one night stand. Um, that she soon discovers is, like, one of the world's most famous movie stars. Um, and that's not a spoiler. That happens within, like, the first few minutes. Um, so it just kind of goes from there. And it's a delightful, um, fun, uh, comedy that is soon getting its second season. So that is why we were watching it. Um, so yeah, Starstruck on HBO Max. Fantastic. And if you want to get more content from us before that time, uh, you should follow along on this feed uh, and listen to my other podcast that releases on alternating Wednesdays from, well, actually Fridays. We've moved to a Friday release schedule because it's easier for all of us. (laughs) Um, But my other show, Did You Do Your Homework, uh, that I record with Marin's husband, Pete, releases on the same feed on alternating weeks. Uh, Our most recent episode was our top tens of 2021, and it was a very fun episode to record. So I highly recommend going back to listen to that. You can find, you can find the shows on all social media outlets at DYDYH podcast, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Although I have been pretty neglectful of those because I've been busy. Leave me alone. Um, (laughs) Uh, you can follow me on all social media at Magical Martha. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter and Instagram, where lately I've been tweeting a lot of my Wordle results and also salty things about my profession. Hmm. I got today's Wordle in two guesses and I felt like a wizard. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> where can people find you on the internet? Uh, folks can find me on Twitter at A underscore star underscore danced, where I pretty much just tweet about romance novels these days so if you're interested in that feel free to give me a follow love it uh we will be back oh also i write a newsletter that i publish whenever i feel like it call uh at tinyletter.com backslash magical martha i think that's everything that i have (laughs) to promote (laughs) um we will be back in a couple of weeks Uh, And until then, just remember that we love ya.
that's going to be a short and sweet episode, but I don't mind. I am so glad that we both had the same level of like, oh, with this movie, I was afraid you were going like to like it way more than me or something. No, uh, I just, I, I got tired. Same. This movie made me, this movie made me tired. 